Hello, and welcome to the OMR Podcast International. I'm your host, Scott Peterson, International Content Editor at OMR, the home of the OMR Festival. On today's show, I'm joined by Jeff Collison, COO at FAIR, a B2B wholesale e-commerce platform that TechCrunch described as Indie Amazon. But with capital raised north of 800 million U.S., a valuation of 12.5 billion U.S. as of May 2022, and a recent partnership with Shopify, that term may belittle FAIR's size. But at its essence, the label does fit. Retailers can access via subscription millions of products by 100,000 brands on the platform and use some very clever filters to ensure that their products align with retailer values, including the very popular Not Available on Amazon filter. Exclusivity attracts people. As for brands, they can limit the availability of their products to what FAIR calls independent global retailers. We talked about the robust offering of features and tools the platform offers, the retailer and brand-friendly features aimed at attracting and aiding new users in building their shops, and the impact of the aforementioned Shopify partnership. So if you're looking to stock or hawk some artisanal wares, this episode is for you. And as per usual, before we get started, if you like what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend. All right, the Omar Podcast. Let's go. Buzz. Jeff, welcome to the Omar Podcast. Thanks, Scott. Happy to be here and appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Um, so um, founded in 2017, FAIR is a B2B marketplace where retailers can access and shop around 100,000 indie brands globally. Um, in addition, FAIR recently partnered with Shopify, becoming its preferred wholesale marketplace. And in May of 2022, uh, FAIR was valued at 12.5 billion US dollars. It's a little bit of context there. Further context, TechCrunch is dubbed FAIR as Indie Amazon, which I'm not sure how you feel about that. Sounds a bit reductive and ironic as there is a not on Amazon filter among many others, which we'll get to later. But it does kind of highlight the fact that um, exclusivity and brand exclusivity is kind of a big selling point for FAIR. Um, that's a lot of information to start things off. Um, maybe best place to start is what is FAIR to you in your eyes? Um, yeah, thanks, Scott. That was a great overview. So FAIR is an online wholesale marketplace that connects brands and retailers, like you mentioned. So on one side of the marketplace, these are folks who make things, could be kind of across a bunch of different categories, could be um, clothing, could be uh, food, could be bath and beauty, could be pet goods, children, toys, um, and folks of kind of, you know, almost all sizes, you know, predominantly smaller, but we also have some larger brands on the platform as well. And then on the other side of the marketplace are retailers. And again, across a, a range of different categories, but these are predominantly smaller retailers. So think, you know, one, two, three location stores uh, that might be in any big city or small town across um, most of Europe or North America. Um, they have an online presence too, but predominantly kind of in, in real world local retail. Um, and so those are the two kind of customers on both sides of the marketplace. And mm -hmm. The brands, those first customers, they primarily come to FAIR for distribution. So if, you know, Scott, you make uh, t-shirts or other kind of apparel clothing, historically to get into local retail was really challenging for you. You had to fly around and go to all these different trade shows. You maybe had to hire uh, super expensive sales reps. Certainly if you're just getting started out, it was uh, expensive, a lot of barriers to kind of get access to that market. Now you can come to FAIR today and you can get access to hundreds of thousands of retailers around the world who can see your products, uh, stock your goods, allows you to really grow your business. And then on the other side of the marketplace, 
retailers come to FAIR to get access to all those brands. You know, we now have, you know, well over hundreds of thousands of brands. Retailers come to FAIR. They can shop across, you know, a ton of different categories, a ton of different types of brand values um, and stock their stores. And then we provide a couple of other value props on the retailer side as well that I'm happy to chat about that kind of gets them to the marketplace. But that's at a super high level kind of what FAIR does and why brands and retailers come to FAIR. All right. And are the majority of uh, retailers, would you say, online or offline, or is it kind of a combination? We started offline. So kind of the initial idea in a lot of um, kind of the initial motivation was we felt like the offline retail market was both doing a lot better than people thought, um, had a brighter future, and was underserved. Um, That is still true. And I think that kind of hypothesis has played out. But we're increasingly... Um, serving retailers that are kind of a blend of both. I think COVID kind of had had an acceleration here as well, where mm-hmm. even offline retailers that were doing most of their business in person in the real world kind of adopted more online tools. So about, I think, 30% of our products ultimately are sold online today, which is kind of roughly e-commerce's penetration into our verticals. You know, Typically in our categories, about 30% of those goods end up being sold online. And now we're, we're roughly representative of that. But we definitely started more offline. Um, and now it's kind of blended online and offline. Okay, and roughly how many retailers do you have? Because I know we touched on how many brands, so around about 100,000, probably more. Uh, how many retailers around about? Um, several hundred thousand, so a multiple of that. Okay, and the primary markets that you're active in, uh, the U.S., obviously, where you're based, uh, U.K. and the EU? Yeah, it's, it's North America, so U.S. and Canada, and then kind of most of, of the U.K. and Europe as well. Okay. Uh, and uh, the largest presence, is, I would assume, is the U.S.? It's still, the US, is... right? it's still the U.S. Mm-hmm. right now, though Europe's growing very fast. And our hope is is one day it, it, it's the same size. Okay. And can you share with me a little bit of like growth figures, like uh, year on year roundabout? Like how how's the platform doing? Yeah, we, we um, I think in the past year, we have made, you know, hundreds of millions of connections between retailers and brands. So products that are sold on the platform um, mm-hmm. doing, you know, over a billion dollars of, of GMV in a year. Um, it's kind of the, the probably the the easiest high-level growth numbers. Gross sales volume, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, merchandise sold. Okay, fair enough. Well, then um, let's... Uh, okay, I want to start with you then a little bit um, like and kind of like how you... Um, came to came about to came into being an entrepreneur did um did you like have a, a problem with authority or were you more <laughs> of a problem solver um like what was it about like being an entrepreneur that uh or like the whole profession that kind of attracted to you uh attracted you to it it's a good question my parents would probably say i have a problem with authority um you seem like a little bit of authority figure right now scott so sorry if i if i lash out <laughs> i think maybe a couple things you know i i grew up and my family was small business owners. My family ran a, a mattress company. My like great great grandfather started it, so we made literal mattresses in okay. um, the Northeast uh, in the states. And I probably didn't appreciate it at the time, but I think it instilled in me the value of entrepreneurship, of ownership, of kind of the um, kind of the payoff of, of grinding and putting in the work. And then in college, I, I ran my own company with some friends. We did. Um, Furniture rental, futon rentals. We had kind of a whole business that that we ran and then sold. Our kind of a there. connection to mattresses, obviously. Yeah, it was. We actually didn't use our family's mattresses, which I think uh, uh, created some, you know, interfamily friction. But it was the right, it was the right, it was the right answer for our customers. But yeah, there was definitely a furniture connection, and I think I knew from that that I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. It wasn't necessarily obvious for me at the time 
coming out of university how to do that. Um, you know, this was 15 years ago now, and there weren't a ton of startups hiring, and there weren't um, a bunch of you know tech companies that were recruiting on university campuses, maybe in the way that there are today. Uh, and so I ended up spending time consulting at kind of one of the big consulting companies. And I think for me, the motivation was one, it was in San Francisco and I just like get to San Francisco, get to the West coast at that time. I think this has changed a bit, but that was certainly kind of the epicenter and just kind of throwing myself into that ecosystem I felt would pay dividends for eventually being able to, um, find my way into more entrepreneurial endeavors. And I lasted maybe a year, a year and a few months. I probably, I wasn't the, the world's best consultant. Um, I learned a ton and I think it was extremely valuable, but I knew I wanted to do something that, you know, had more direct customer impact where I felt like I could kind of measure what I was doing and the output was going to be a little bit more tied to the work I was doing and, and hopefully teach me and put me on the path to be able to start a company as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I joined Square after not too long at consulting and that was just uh, an incredible ride. You know, I joined Square less than a year after it launched its first product. It was super small. Stayed there for five years, got to see it through being a large public company, just learned a tremendous amount, met my co-founders for fair there. Um, so that was a kind of seminal learning experience for me that I think was a big reason why I wanted to move to San Francisco and it kind of paid off in both the opportunity there and then getting to learn a ton. And obviously lucky that I joined Square and it took off the way it did, but tried to kind of harvest as much learning as I could from that experience. All right. And then, uh, so that was, uh, you left um, Square actually probably just to found uh to found uh fair correct yeah we kind of had the idea and my, my co-founder max kind of the the initial idea while we were there and i think kind of a bunch of folks who joined square probably did so with ambition so you know maybe get a, a an education in how to start and run a company with the aspiration of doing so afterwards and square tried to and we've tried to emulate that here as best we can really create an environment of entrepreneurship and uh, maybe at times bordering on controlled chaos uh, to really help folks, I think, encourage them to be entrepreneurial within the constructs of Square. And I think that ended up creating a founder mindset within a lot of folks. And we left in kind of summer of 2016. Wow, yeah, 2016. And time flies. Start, yeah, time does fly. Wow. And started working on the idea kind of that summer, that fall. Okay. How long did it take you to then get to uh, from uh, conception and idea and like kicking throwing those ideas around to to launch into like kind of like a, a fleshed out product? Yeah, I think that the and maybe I can I can step back and talk a little bit about kind of where the idea came from and the motiv motivation too. You know, we were at Square at the time, and my co-founder Max actually ran an umbrella company on the side. So there's lots of entrepreneur ener entrepreneurial energy at Square, and he had had kind of firsthand the experience of hey, I'm kind of trying to find distribution for this umbrella. I'm flying from trade show to trade show. This kind of seems like a crazy way to try to find um, retailers who want to stock my product. And when I find the right retailer, it's great. There's tons of sales. They love it. But connecting with them is really difficult. Um, I was actually running the trade show team at Square at, at, at this time. And so also had a lot of exposure to trade shows. And, mm -hmm. and kind of Max's initial experience there, coupled with, all of us spending our weeks working on technology for small businesses and that kind of juxtaposition of, hey, this market feels like it's super untouched by technology and these folks would really benefit from it. And we're building all these awesome tools for small businesses at Square, I think was a, a pretty stark juxtaposition. And part of the reason, I think, is that the wholesale market and that kind of industry, I don't think is um, 
necessarily like super sexy or would be the first place that folks would think about exposing um, entrepreneurial energy. You know, there's lots of folks who don't have any exposure to it. Most of us are consumers. We've interacted with retailers. We've interacted with brands. We haven't necessarily seen um, kind of the part of that triangle where brands and retailers interact. So I think that was one thing. It was a fairly underinvested uh, space just because not a lot of folks that had exposure to it and not a lot of folks that had exposure to it and maybe kind of come from a technology or more entrepreneurial background. Um, I think the second reason is it is, was a hard and misunderstood problem. I think there had probably been lots of folks who had walked around trade shows and thought, you know, I don't know if you've been to a trade show, Scott, um, but- Been to a few. Yeah, it, it feels a little crazy, particularly depending on um, kind of the, the, the vertical. And so I don't think we were the first folks to wander around a trade show floor and think, you know, this this feels like it's can be helped by technology, that the folks kind of wandering around, frustrated, unable to find the right product for their store, feels like a problem that we can solve with technology. But I think what a lot of folks have done is just take a trade show and kind of put it online. And if you do that, it, it might work for the brand because you know brands will list their products and increased distribution is great for them. And kind of anywhere you can get additional sale as a brand is really valuable. It actually makes the problem kind of worse for retailers. If you're a retailer, you're already working with super thin margins. Um, the notion of kind of stocking your store with a product that you can't touch or feel, or you can't kind of interact with the brand and understand that story uh, is pretty uh, worrisome. It, 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 it means you are not positive that product's gonna sell through. If you have to mark it down, it can kind of already, um, it, it can kind of already erode some pretty thin margins. And so just kind of taking that trade show and putting it online, and now as a retailer, I can't touch feel that product, I can't interact with that brand, actually kind of makes the problem worse for me. And so I think a lot of folks who had approached the space hadn't had an appreciation for kind of the retailer experience and what they were solving for. And for us, you know, you talk about kind of when things took off or, or what were some of the value props that really helped um, attract customers. And I think it was this notion of, of free returns. And so if you're a retailer on Fair Today and you order a product, we actually guarantee, and you try out a new brand, we actually guarantee that product will sell. And if it doesn't, you can, you can send it back to Fair. And so we want to take some of that anxiety and stress out of trying out new brands. And that allows retailers to try way more brands, brands to get into way more retailers. And so for us, I think that kind of insight and then the ability to execute against that and kind of build a business where you're taking on that risk was a, a big part of what resonated with the brand and retailer community. So you're um, totally streamlining discovery uh, a lot for the uh, for retailers with brands and also giving brands like an opportunity to kind of boost their profile and like kind of just Exactly. And it, yeah. it, it really is. I mean, one of the best things about our business is like we only succeed when our customers do. Like if we don't match, if we don't get a brand to the right retailer and get the right products in a retailer store, that product comes back to us and, you know, we're not going to benefit, but we don't deserve to benefit because our customers and our brands don't benefit. And so kind of aligning our incentives with them, I think, very early on also helped us ensure we were kind of building the right thing for our customers. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I, I just, before we get into uh, kind of the meets, uh, the nuts and bolts uh, of FAIR, which is definitely going to be, uh, is on the agenda, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, when you were kind of fleshing out this idea, though, um, back around the time of its genesis, were you not concerned at all that you were going to be uh, taking on Amazon <laughs> and kind of like in, working in that space? Because, I mean, plenty of people have launched kind of marketplaces before uh, in the past and failed miserably. Uh, that, or do you not really view Amazon as a competitor? I don't think we necessarily view Amazon as a competitor, primarily because we're working and our retailers are more interested in things that aren't commodities. Um, and they're more interested in 
unique products that tell a story and that resonate with their community. And I think you um, referenced this uh, in your opening, but you know, one of the most, I think the most popular filter on our website today, so if you're a retailer looking for products, is the not sold on Amazon tag. So it really is looking for things that are kind of distinct from what you can find with a quick Google on Amazon. That said, I, I do think to, to your point, the kind of local retail market and the notion that we were building for small independent retailers in a world of Amazon and big box was definitely something that um, certainly when, when we were talking to folks and when people would initially look at our, our kind of pitch was definitely uh, a narrative that we had to kind of explain. And I think we fundamentally believed, and I think it's proven out and still believe in it and think if anything, COVID has accelerated this the kind of strength and durability of small independent retail. Um, we felt like that narrative of the retail apocalypse, offline retail is dead, was a bit of a lazy narrative. It was kind of a narrative that actually was more driven by big box retail struggling and failing than it was by independent offline retail, which we felt like was actually doing better than people realized. Um, and that was a big part of, I think, kind of our motivation and insight initially was just a fundamental belief in that market that I'm not sure other folks had as well. Okay. Well, um, uh, one last question to kind of like uh, um, put a bow on your um, your past career, if you will. Um, you co-founded FAIR in 2017, and then five, mi- five months later, you left and you went to Open Door. Um, and I'm just like curious, like what was it about Open Door that kind of compelled you to leave just as uh, while FAIR was getting started? Yeah, for me, it was it was more about I was going through some personal things and, and candidly struggling a bit with my mental health at the time and felt like I just needed a little bit more space and a little bit more structure in my life. And for me, what attracted me to Open Door was uh, an amazing team, an opportunity to kind of learn and see another company go through the same scale that I had at Square, but with a little bit of a different seat because I was a little bit older, came in a little bit more senior. Um and so I spent a little bit less than than two years there, and it was definitely an incredible experience. I think it made me better for that next phase of FAIR, um, but also tough. I think I, I missed some moments at FAIR and, and some of the the early struggles and early successes that, um, having been back for, for five years now, I feel like we've built on, but there's definitely um, some regret for missing that and um, something that I definitely still wrestle with. Did you feel like uh, when you rejoined FAIR that it was a lateral move at the time or did you just feel like this was right because this was like kind of going back to your baby or like how <laughs> like like how how did you kind of sell yourself on like going back? I would say that the conversations to go back started not too long after leaving, probably like a year after. Um, and I think it was a lot of the same things that initially were so exciting about FAIR. It was you know, an amazing team. Initially, the the co-founders, but then by then, you know, some other folks as well who had joined. Um, the opportunity, I think we, I still felt, and certainly while I was gone, they had made a ton of progress to validate that, um, that the opportunity was really, really big and really underserved. And then last, the customers are just, they're amazing. They're the best customers to build for. Um, the folks who are starting independent retail shops and kind of cornerstones of their community, people that are pouring their passion into building a brand or a product to sell to folks, to create it from nothing, um, there's, there's not much more motivating than when you talk to customers that we've had an impact on. And I think, you know, across team market customers that never really changed. And it was more about when I was maybe in, in, in the right spot to be able to come back. And when the company was ready f- for me as well, and we felt like there, there was still a fit there given everything that had changed. 
Sure. And speak, and uh, shortly after you came back, there was a massive change, uh, uh, one that we've kind of touched on, which was COVID. And um, I, a lot of times, like uh, when I'm talking to people through on the pod, like they kind of say like the impact of COVID is a little bit overstated, but I don't think that that is like necessarily your thesis and your experience. <laughs> um, interesting. Provocative questions. Like it was COVID... COVID overstated. Well, no, not, no, the impact as far yeah, as like on, the, on an initial business, like whether or not like that really kind of jump started it or if we were already on that path, uh, that growth trajectory, those types of things. Not trying to downplay COVID. This is not a conspiracy theory <laughs> no. format, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, no, but it's just like, because um, especially like within the context of digitization for like smaller shop owners and stuff, like I oh. think like that definitely accelerated the process for a lot of people. Totally. And uh, I, I imagine that it would just definitely behoove fair. Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. I was I was being playful. Um, I think there are elements of COVID that I think there was an acceleration in trends that maybe folks misinterpreted as durable, um, and we were guilty of this at times as well. And I think in terms of it being overplayed, I think that kind of like trajectory changing nature of COVID and it kind of changing how technology tools in certain behaviors on kind of a macro level we're going to be adopted is is probably a fair characterization. I think everyone has seen some of those lines that it's like, you know, extremely predictable. It goes crazy for two years. Oh, well, I assume it's going to keep going. Then it goes right back on that predictable line. And I think that that trend you've seen now kind of play out in over the last, you call it 18 months, a lot of businesses try to adapt to that reversion. I think the things that are not overstated or the trends that are actually proving to be more durable are some of the more kind of micro behavioral trends under that. I think, you know, using our business as an example, I mentioned earlier that most of our retailers did not have an online presence. That might sound crazy to you in 2019 and early 2020, but you've got to remember that our, our customers, you know, they chose to start a physical business in their community. What motivated them was running a business that had a connection to their customers that curated an awesome experience, an awesome set of products for their community. And they weren't necessarily interested in you know, running an online digital business as well. I think 20%, less than 30% of um, our customers actually even had an online presence of our retailers before COVID. That number jumped to 70% <laughs> during COVID. And that probably would have hit 70% in five or six years, but it accelerated because of the pandemic and because of retailers needing to adapt. Then I think the other kind of like trend that you saw during COVID that I think was happening before, similar to retailers adopting online tools, but got accelerated is just consumers caring about where their products come from and supporting local businesses. I think COVID was a stark reminder for folks on kind of the importance um, of those retailers and, and not just kind of our customers, but kind of any small businesses in their community. And you saw folks rally around them in a really big, meaningful way. Um, and I think we're seeing that trend kind of continue as well. Okay. Well, then let's uh, talk then a little bit more about the platform um, and kind of get down to the uh, nitty gritty of how it works. Um, maybe like start from the perspective of, of retailers, like, you know, a, a local shop here in Germany where, where we're based. Um, how how exactly can they like filter through all the hundred thousand brands and kind of find like a unique brand fit through uh, through the platform? Yeah. So if you were a small retailer in, in Germany, which we have many of, um, you'd come to fair today. And depending on kind of what your entry point into the platform was, we would personalize that experience for you. So we would say, okay, here is kind of maybe what you've browsed for or what similar folks who uh, have bought products like you or kind of 
look like you based on what you've told us in our onboarding survey. And then we'll sift through all of those products we have, you know, those tens of millions of products we have, and do our best to kind of surface things that we know will work for you and sell in your store. And it is a mix of art and science. I think we feel like we have lots of data and have gotten really, really smart, you know, through billions of dollars of ordering through our platform and knowing what's going to sell in your store, not just kind of what you want to order, but what do your customers want? Because ultimately for the success of, you know, Scott's corner store, uh, it, it's do your customers want the products that you sell in your store? And so that experience for you will be hopefully lots of products that really resonate with you that you're really excited about. Um, you order those products on our platform. They get shipped kind of directly from the brand to you. You know that there's no stress in ordering them because if they don't sell in your store, you can return them back to fair. And then mm -hmm. we'll also underwrite you and give you financing. So we offer net 30 or net 60 terms to our customers. And that might sound like a kind of a small thing. Lots of folks um, get terms, payment terms, but actually it's pretty meaningful for our customers. And specifically because lots of smaller independent retailers historically have not been able to get financing or underwriting. They're smaller customers. They don't have a ton of credit history. And so actually having to pay for those goods before they've been sold in your store can, can be quite difficult. And so we allow you to kind of pay us after you have sold those goods by paying kind of 60 days later after you've ordered. Okay. And that also then includes, like, um, you can also return some of the products that don't sell well, right? The first time you order a product, if I'm not mistaken, and there's some other like kind of uh, retail-friendly features. Yeah, exactly. I mean, hopefully they're all going to sell in your store. But if they don't, if you have a couple left don't. at the at the end of uh, at the end of two months, you can return them back to fair, and we'll completely refund you. And the goal of that is to take the stress out of ordering for you. And you can kind of think of all of those features. If I simplify it down to, you know, really smart data to help you stock the right products, giving you free returns so that you can kind of send product back if it doesn't sell underwriting you and giving you financing terms. And we also then try to, um, there's a fourth feature around free shipping where we try to take the fact that we have all these independent retailers around the world on our platform and use that size to give you better shipping rates, free shipping in many cases. All of those things are benefits that like big retailers have always had. If you think of a big box retailer, they've always had a bunch of data and a bunch of really smart you know, analysts figuring out what products to carry. They've always been able to push product back, so essentially have free returns to smaller vendors. They've certainly always gotten financing. They've always gotten the benefit of you know, huge volume with, with shipping carriers to get low rates. And a lot of our vision is, can we take all of the little independent stores around the world and give them the same tools those big folks have to compete with both the big box retailers and the Amazons of the world too? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so like another one of the kind of like nice things that I, I liked is uh, if I'm not mistaken and didn't like misread like kind of like the, the features in there, like you also like through the platform can like easily set up an online shop um, for like, you know, the brick and mortar shop on the corner to kind of like you know, whatever, find, you know, help with the, attracting new customer bases, like maybe in here in Northern Germany, you find people in Southern Germany or beyond wherever. Um, and then also, like you'd mentioned, like the free shipping, um, you have like kind of a subscription plan in place, right? Um, what is it? Insider, correct? Yeah, exactly. Insider is is our subscription program for retailers where they pay a monthly fee and then they get free shipping coverage on, you know, a vast majority of products that they're they're browsing. But like in theory, like something that is being produced in LA, I could get to Germany for at least at a discounted rate shipping-wise. Yeah, wise. absolutely. And the, the rate... The goal, in, in, the, in, in most cases, the rate is lower than you can get on your own because we're aggregating all that volume that we get. And I think you touched on another interesting kind of 
um, benefit of the last few years since we've expanded internationally is I think we've always provided access and kind of helped accelerate this independent local, this independent retail trend and independent brands. But since going international, we've really unlocked this kind of unique, new, and I think uh, previously closed corridor between you know yourself in Hamburg and a brand that you find uh, in Alabama. And it might seem, you know, okay, I don't think there's, you might think to yourself, like, I don't think there's a lot of brands in Alabama or Southern California. You might that, be surprised, but yeah. <laughs> are going are gonna to resonate with my customers in Hamburg. Um, and there might not be a ton, but there are some. And I think that's been one of the biggest surprises for us is what consumers want and what brands value are pretty similar around the world. They're not identical, but people care about craftsmanship. People care that the product is high quality. Um, those brand values are really universal. And it's been it's been pretty cool to see some of the connections between retailers and brands around the world that would have you know previously been impossible. But you can see how it's helping their business. And you talk to a brand in, um, I mean, even Alabama was top of mind because I've, I've heard some stories around this. And they're like, I have my product is stock in two stores in Hamburg. I didn't expect that when I started my business five years ago, but it's pretty cool to see. Okay, fair enough. And then, um, so let's go through then from the brand perspective, how exactly does kind of discovery work for them? Um, how can they kind of be, uh, attract the attention of retailers on the platform? Yeah, so the, the the way it works as a brand is when you sign up and onboard to FAIR, you kind of list your products. And so you bring your catalog to FAIR and we will, based on the type of products you have, based on the kind of retailers that you're stocking today, help service your products to the right retailers and the folks that um, we think your product is going to resonate with. As a brand, you also have some control over that. So when a re what's really important to brands is that their products are merchandised in the right spots, that the stores that they're represented in um, are kind of emblematic of, of, of the brand and the ethos that they want to convey to the world. So a brand doesn't just necessarily want to you know, be stocked in every store they can possibly be in. They want to be stocked in the right stores. Um, and so we also allow brands to kind of accept or deny retailers when they place an order from them so that they can ensure it's kind of the right stockist for their products. Um, and there's a few other ways for brands to get in front of retailers as well. Um, we have a CRM platform and kind of a way for them to market to brands, both on fair and off fair. Mm -hmm. We have some other kind of mechanisms for them to provide free shipping or better shipping options to, to retailers if they want to get in front of them more. And we're also kind of very early uh, in the process of kind of ex experimenting with other ways for them to get in front of retailers. Like SEO and things like that, like search engine, whatever. Like kind of just to boost the profile. Yeah. And partnerships like like you mentioned, you know, the Shopify partnership has been amazing for mm -hmm. helping our brands both get started really quickly with an online site, um, as well as ensure that kind of the running your business across multiple channels, the wholesale channel of FAIR, the kind of online channel of, of Shopify or other partners um, is up to date and you're not having to kind of like go back and forth with inventory and things like that. And Shopify has been a great partner for that. Okay. Um, well, then let's talk about some of those products that you'd mentioned uh, for like a, a, a hot sauce manufacturer in Alabama or a shirt maker in, in Hamburg. Um, what are like some of the best sellers or maybe like some of the most unique products you'd say that on the, uh, on the platform that have caught your eye over or that surprised you since you've gone, uh, since you launched? Almost any product you can imagine. Um, I think one of the funnest parts and most interesting parts for us was seeing how the kind of merchandise and behavior of customers changed during the pandemic. So I think one of the things that the pandemic and in the early days demonstrated, and part of the reason I think it it validated and helped independent retail so much, besides just their communities rallying around them, is just how agile and flexible they can be. They were able to change what they were carrying in their stores much quicker than larger retailers, they were able to be much more agile. 
And you saw that in the types of things that they were carrying. You know, we saw spikes for things like puzzles, um, pajamas. One of the things that I hadn't anticipated that became a big hit was kind of um, the the mixed drink kits where you kind of just add a cocktail shakers. Yeah, cocktail shakers. And basically it, it, it's a uh, kind of like a jar of uh, a mixed drink and you just add liquor and those mm-hmm. spiked in sales as well. So those are some of the fun trends. Um, obviously a difficult time, but seeing the kind of trends that our retailers adopted in those moments. Um, and then we saw, you know, more recently this summer, one of the uh, most popular search terms that kind of came out of nowhere. I assume there was some searching for it before, but Barbie. Oh, yeah. Barbie goods. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I actually haven't looked back to see how much searching was having for Barbie like three years ago. I'm sure there was some, but you saw it go through the roof this summer. And then our our brands are just so creative and the amount of kind of products that either were referencing Barbie or kind of adjacent to it for our retailers was, was amazing. How closely do you work with your brands? Um, very closely. And it, it, it varies a lot on the size of the brand as well. Um, how much kind of support they need if they have tons of products or doing tons of volume. If you're kind of a little bit larger, you probably have a closer relationship with us because you need support. If you're mm-hmm. smaller and just getting started, um, you tend to be a little bit more independent. All right. Um, and do these kind of like best-selling products uh, or con- I mean, consumer habits obviously uh, change uh, based on the market, but like with some of the products as well, um, that, like uh, just maybe in uh, Minnesota where I'm originally from or California or Hamburg, Germany, um, like kind of how do these, the best-selling products or maybe just like product categories skew um, de- depending on uh, uh, on the market? Yeah, they're fairly similar in terms of kind of the broad categories, whether it's apparel or food or pet. I think the biggest thing that we see is that folks just prefer to shop and stock their stores locally. So I think the the biggest thing that we've been able to provide to folks is not just goods from around the corner, but within your region, within your trade zone, within your state, because that's probably the single biggest difference that we see is, you know, folks want to carry a huge percent of their store from local brands. And in many cases, even if that brand was across the city, they might not have known it existed. You know, there's a fun dynamic that I don't think I necessarily anticipated in the business where you have lots of retailers who say, oh, I discovered this amazing product on your site and it sells like crazy in my store and it's from you know one town over and I just didn't know they existed. Um, and so I think those connections are fun too for us to make. All right. Um, and then I wanted to also ask you a little bit um, kind of like um, uh, growth and expansion. Um, and I mentioned this earlier when I asked you about your growth, but then like with some of these uh, growth strategies, like with the partnership, like with Spotify, I'm just really curious, like how has that kind of impacted um, FAIR in the macro and kind of uh, as far as the overall profile is concerned? And then also kind of like the micro where I- I'm assuming that really helps you guys grow and attract more retailers. Um, because if I'm not mistaken, like when you go to Shopify, well, let's go start with FAIR. When you're on FAIR, you, uh, you automatically recommend or Shopify is a preferred payment partner. And then there's also a little bit of give and take like with Shopify where Shopify recommends FAIR as its preferred independent wholesaler, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think for us, the motivation was a huge share of our customers are using Shopify today. And it's just really painful. We the, we have an integration and we had a relationship with them, but it wasn't as seamless and it wasn't as deep as it should have been for customers. I think we really tried to start from the customer lens. And you know, to be super specific, if you're a brand or a retailer on FAIR and you use Shopify, in many cases, you were having to you know, enter data twice. In many cases, you were having to spend 
kind of like your weekend reconciling what was an inventory. Someone ordered a product and was out of stock because it got sold over here. And so the motivation for that partnership was, you know, first and foremost, how can we provide more customer value? How can we make this as seamless and as easy as possible for our joint customers? And I think we also, you know, admire Shopify a lot and feel like they've built an amazing company and an amazing set of products for our customers. And we hear that from our customers all the time. So we feel like this is just the beginning of the things that we can do with a really large overlapping customer base. Um, and they've been great partners in, in helping us do that. And have you noticed like a, an impact on growth or uh, with uh, regard to like retailers and just kind of just overall um, impact of the partnership? We're in the the early days. Um, we announced it only a couple months ago, and we're just starting to get live some of the deeper integrations. But we're definitely hearing really positive feedback from customers. I think specifically folks that um, are both customers had been on the kind of old integration that we had and have now transitioned to the one that's reflective of the deeper partnership. Very positive feedback and really clear from those customers that we're investing in trying to make this as easy as possible for them. All right. Well, then, um, what other like marketing channels do you use to maybe attract new retailers or to get the word out to brands? Or is it purely word of mouth? Um, or do you use some of the classic marketing channels, your LinkedIn's, your Facebook's, uh, Instagram's, TikTok's of the world? We use some of the classic marketing channels uh, around Google and, and Facebook. And I think building a brand in our community is important because our, our customers are um, very community-oriented, kind of very brand-driven, and that's super important to us. And they'll kind of, I think... The resonance of that matters. Um, we also have uh, a program that allows brands and retailers to refer each other to FAIR. And that's been a big driver of our growth historically because a lot of these brands and retailers may already have relationships, but are kind of ordering or communicating through text or through fax or through things that are a lot less efficient and in many cases more expensive to kind of transact. Um, and so we have a, a referral program that allows folks to bring their customers over or folks that are prospective customers, we kind of help incentivize that and don't charge a commission for that because we feel like they've kind of earned that business outside of FAIR. Um, but then those folks join the platform and they they experience an order from other brands um, or get orders from other retailers. And so that's also been kind of in additional to traditional marketing channels, um, a big driver of, of our growth and kind of ability to, to aggregate customers. And you also incentivize it for uh, retailers, if I'm not mistaken. Like if you refer somebody else, they can get up to $2,000 in credit. Uh, it's 100 uh, hundred. Yeah. Oh, that would be, that'd be great. Well, still, that. like regardless, free money is free money. Take totally. it. And, and the, motivation, um, the motivation there is to, to, you know, in some ways you can think of that as our customer acquisition cost because we're not getting them through another traditional channel and incentivize them to try out the product the platform, order from brands. And in many cases, once retailers kind of get over that hump and try out FAIR, they see the value pretty meaningfully. And that's the motivation behind that. All right. And we've also, um, I think one of the the underlying themes of FAIR and, um, and kind of like the core mission statement, as you will, is just kind of like the importance placed on community um, and um, the like trying to support like local businesses and everything else. Um, but you also um, kind of in a more abstract view, um, you, uh, FAIR has a, a an opera, uh, publishes and operates a company blog with tips, strategies um, designed to entertain and educate customers and kind of also is creating this community online as well. Um, could you talk to me a little bit about the impact of that and kind of like how uh, how it benefits FAIR overall, like keeping your your community or your, your consumers kind of engaged with FAIR? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, we believe the world is more interesting and more fun when there are independent local retailers and brands curating amazing products, making great products. I think the, that's the future we want fundamentally. And I think 
hopefully we're playing a role in accelerating the trend and the hope for that that consumers have and all the amazing entrepreneurs that are kind of creating that on the retailer and brand side, helping them have access to tools, helping create a community amongst them, I think only furthers that. They have been historically disadvantaged in terms of access. They have been historically disadvantaged in terms of education compared to larger retailers. And our hope is that some of the tools that we provide, and I don't think we're, I think we're still in the early days of this. I think we've started. I don't think we're amazing at it. I think there's a lot of things that we can do better and we need to do better. But in a world where we can be kind of a resource and a tool to help folks start a new independent retail shop or to make that a lot easier to connect some brands with each other so that they can share best practices, that'll only help our customers do better, both in the short term and then hopefully the long term of this, this movement of the growth of independent retail. And you know, FAIR is only going to be successful if our customers are successful, both like micro on every transaction, like I mentioned, but then macro in terms of is this a flourishing market um, on both the brand and the retailer side. So I think for us, it is the motivation is, can we help these customers as much as possible? Yes, that's going to help FAIR long term, um, but we, we know it's going to help our retailers in the short term too. All right. Um, <clears throat> just got a couple more topics before I let you get out of here. Um, and I, I do need to talk, uh, uh, discuss a little bit about the recent uh, job cups and layoffs that you guys had to to implement. And that was, I guess, uh, last week, two weeks ago, uh, laid off a couple hundred people. Um, and it was the second time you had to restructure the company in the past year. And I'm curious, like, how did you see or like, why was it necessary for FAIR to restructure? Yeah, it was it was a really difficult moment, and the motivation was to restructure the company to kind of better align with what we were trying to do, uh, as well as I think better align in a similar way that lots of other companies have done the kind of post COVID trends that feel like going to be the steady state in our market and in the broader in the broader macroeconomic. So our focus is still to be a great long term partner for our customers, and these are really hard moments, and you never want to really part with members of your team, especially folks who. Uh, have contributed so much. So it was a very difficult moment. Uh, I'm thankful for everyone. And um, yeah, it was, it was a tough couple of weeks. But we're excited about looking forward and what we can build for our customers. Sure. Um, and then um, speaking of like where we're going like forward, um, we touched on kind of the markets and stuff where you're active in at the moment. Uh, what other markets are you eyeing at, the, uh, at present? Uh, either like within Europe, Australia, beyond Asia has got to be also interesting at some point for you. Yeah, I think we are live in Australia. Um, we have a, a small focus there and we're just starting to grow it. Um, so I definitely think that if I press fast forward on kind of what FAIR looks like, the goal is to be a global wholesale marketplace live in you know, every market that there's brands and retailers. The focus is still on Europe. We feel like we haven't totally built the right experience for customers yet. And we have a bunch of work to do to really make it awesome, um, mm -hmm. to really make FAIR feel you know, for a retailer in Hamburg um, like it was a local product built for that retailer. We're getting better, but we're not there yet. So we still feel like we have a bunch of work to do in Europe, but we definitely have aspirations post-Europe to be the global wholesale marketplace. We think that our customers want to be able to sell and buy goods from anywhere in the world, and it makes sense for FAIR to be the place for them to do it. Well, all right. Well, Jeff Collison, COO of FAIR, thank you so much for taking the time to me uh, for me today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Scott, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been fun. That's all we got for you today. Thank you to Jeff from FAIR for joining me today. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else out there beyond and in between. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend. And don't forget to subscribe. Until we meet again, swim with a buddy.